In chapter three, Helsel gets into mapping racial identity development. And basically what she's getting at here is trying to understand how it is that we come to experience race and racism in the world around us. One of the big concepts that's going to shape this chapter is the idea that race is socially constructed. In other words, race is not a biological category. There's no gene that all white people have in common or that all Asian people have in common or that all Native American people have in common. One of the results of this is that the way we've categorized people into various races has changed over time. For example, the definition of who's considered white has ebbed and flowed. In the 19th century, immigrants to America from Southern and Eastern Europe, Italians and Greeks, for example, weren't considered fully white. But if the same person was alive today, then they would be. Or if you want another example, you can look at old census questionnaires where they ask about race or what used to say race and color. From after the Civil War until today, the question about race has constantly changed to reflect changing societal norms. In the late 19th century, for example, Japanese and Chinese were considered separate racial categories on the census, but today they would just be included under the same category. And this gets into part of what Helsel tries to parse out in this chapter that's important. Because race is socially constructed, there's a difference between being racialized and having one's own racial identity. When Helsel talks about being racialized, she means the ways in which society assigns us to a certain racial group. The census is a good illustration of this. Before the census began using self-reporting, a census worker would go from door to door and fill out the form for themselves. And when they got to the racial category, they would put in whatever race they thought the person was that they were talking to. So when Helsel talks about understanding yourself as racialized, she means understanding that you're always put into some kind of category by the people around you. That's different than racial identity. Racial identity comes from people having their own sense of belonging within a racial category. So to take that census example again, your racialized identity is the one given to you by the person taking the census, but your own racial identity is the one that you personally identify with, the one that you would choose if you were filling out the form for yourself. Those two things often match up, but sometimes they don't. Someone's racial identity might be different from the one ascribed to them by society. So think about a census taker who puts someone in the wrong box, or someone who identifies as multiracial, but they have light skin, so they get racialized as white. And this is all a long way of saying that because race is socially constructed, it's something that's mediated along the relationships and institutions that give us a sense of identity. It means that how we define and categorize various races change over time, and it means that our own understanding of our racial identity can change too. And it's this second part that Helsel really tries to get into in the second part of this chapter, which is how do we come to understand our own racial identity? And she uses a framework here that's called racial identity development theory. And this describes a set of stages and interactions that people go through as they begin to understand their racial identity. And it's different for people of color 
as opposed to white people. So this week, I'm just going to give you the series of steps that are outlined for people of color. And I'm getting this from HellCell, uh, as well as the Smithsonian has some resources available from the National Museum of African American History. And the point here, the thing that's good to notice, is not a series of steps that everyone works through at exactly the same time, but a way of identifying some dynamics that people experience in their life. The first step is called pre-encounter or conformity. And at this stage, people tend to understand the dominant racial culture as normal. So if you're thinking about this in terms of kids, it might mean that you have an understanding of your own appearance that's different from others, but you don't ascribe any real importance to it. The second step is called encounter or dissonance. And this stage often arises when people have some experience of being racialized or discriminated against. President Obama gave an interview a few years ago where he described an experience when he was about 10 years old. And he was going home, he got on the elevator, and a woman refused to ride with him. And that was part of when he understood that his identity as a black person meant that he would be discriminated against in some ways and that people would project their own ideas onto him. So encounter and dissonance is about becoming aware of the existence of racism and prejudice in the world. The third step is called immersion in resistance. And this stage generally refers to realizing that other people in one's own racial group have had similar experiences. And so there's a greater sense of solidarity within one's own racial or cultural group. The solidarity means that we don't feel like as much of an other. We're not the only person that this happens to. And it also means that we might feel distrustful of dominant cultural groups. It would be easy to imagine to take President Obama's example of assuming that everyone would act the same way that that white woman would, who wouldn't get in the elevator with him. The fourth step here is called internalization or introspection. And this may mean gaining a greater appreciation for difficulties that are faced by other marginalized groups. And this is related to the intersectionality stuff that we talked about last week. So it may mean realizing that marginalization can be more complicated than just us and them, but that there are these other identities that may also be relevant. And that there might be people in my own racial or cultural group who have different experiences because of other identities that they hold. And the fifth step, this is the last one, is called commitment or integration. And it means having a secure and confident sense of our own racial or cultural identity and having a commitment to working toward justice for one's own racial or cultural group and for others who are marginalized. So that's the basic five-step model that HellCell is unpacking here. And there are two things that I think are really important to notice here. One is that our racial identity develops internally and externally. So it's based on events that happen in the world. Think, Think of Obama's experience in the elevator. But it's also determined by how we process and make meaning of those events. The second thing to notice is that things change over time. So our understanding of racial identities are never static, but they're always changing based on the world around us. They may be activated by things we experience or things on the news or experiences within our own families. 
So if you want to bring these two things all the way around, we started this talking about racial identity and living in a racialized society. And those two things, I said that they're different, and they are, but they're not totally separate because they do affect each other. They're all bound up and they mutually inform one another. So that's it for this week. Next week, we're going to be continuing in this chapter. We're going to do a similar exercise for thinking about racial development for majority ethnic groups. So we're going to be talking about racial identity development among white people. And we'll get to see how they're similar and how they're different. Thank you.